What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome you to Porch Talk. This is your host, Alan. I have Johnny Havard and Justin Howard with me. And I can't wait, because this is going to wrap up the Labor Day weekend in Mobile, Alabama. So here is I Can't Wait by Star and Micey. I had you on the telephone, said you won't be coming home. Heard you had to leave the state, said you won't be back someday. Well, now I can't wait. No, I think. Yeah. I heard you went to Tennessee, thought that you'd come back to me, thought you said you'd never leave, baby, please come home to me, well now I
Johnny, if you will, I mean, just a little bit about y'all getting to know each other and becoming friends, and then we'll just roll right into it. Uh, well, the saga begins a long time ago in a trailer park far, far away. <laughs> no, what a trailer park. It was a trailer, though. Well, it was even before that. Um, me and Howard have known each other for... Um, shit, what? I think it's about a little over 10 years. Over 10 years now. Uh, if, if, you know, not counting... Uh, the times that I, I knew him when I was a kid, because uh, he uh, he was really good friends with uh, my older cousin, and uh, so you know, and 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 he lived with my my cousin lived with my our great grandmother, and they lived right next door to us, and uh, there weren't a whole lot of kids in our neighborhood besides me and my brother, and uh, so uh, I was like, I'm gonna hang out with him, you know, and Anthony had a Nintendo and he had a computer and he had all this shit, and mm-hmm. I was like, I don't got nothing. So, uh, hanging out with them, and then I started hanging out with his friends, because they would all come over to Nanny's and hang out, and that's when I started meeting him and some other friends. Well, flash forward, um, uh, my, uh, I graduated high school, uh, my dad just passed, I'm out partying, doing shit, wanting to get into shit, and I uh, started hanging out with my older cousin again, which <laughs> probably shouldn't have did, but, it, but in hindsight, I'm glad I did, because, uh, I uh, started hanging out, and then I started hanging out with this guy again, and uh, becoming uh, better friends. And uh, and then uh, later on, uh, the guy's house we were hanging out with, we pretty much banished my cousin from the circle because he was just, he was just, he's a shithead. <laughs> <laughs> too much. That's uh, yeah, too much. Like I, it, I, we can do like a se- we could do probably a whole separate podcast of just about what that sh- that dude did, the shit that he did. But um, we Let's won't get the kids into bad that. ideas. Yeah, don't give. No, no. You can learn a thing or two. If anything, learn not what to do. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, but but later on, I, I wound up living when I when I started working at the prison. I started living with a mutual friend of ours, uh, Tim, and um, we 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 were hanging out. We were always hanging out. We always had people over, and then this guy showed up, and then I was like just getting to talk to him and everything I'm like this dude is fucking awesome like he's just so smart and I'm just like I can learn something from this dude and we just started uh, hanging out more and then we just started hanging out regularly and then um, yeah yeah, and then uh, we just uh, he's the one that introduced me to uh, stand up introduced me to Bill Hicks Rogan Chappelle Mm -hmm. you know all those guys um, you know, and just, and then we talk about film and movies and everything. So, so he's been a, he's been a big, huge inspiration to who I am now. So I, I call him my older brother. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, just I'm touched, sir. I'm touched. <laughs> and just with that, man, just when I added you on uh, Facebook and getting to see some of the film work that you've done and like just some of the posts is mm-hmm. strong opinions and, uh, a lot of a lot of humor. It's it's yeah. funny. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. It uh we me and uh, another mutual friend of ours, Brett uh, Nelson. We uh you know we're all we all started hanging out together too. We all just I forget we were at a party. We were at my cousin's house and we were all just we we all wound up watching King of the Hill together. And then we were like, all right, we're gonna start hanging out with these. So we all just started hanging out. We still got a group text message like the three of us from fucking years and years, just random stuff, random memes and whatnot. Uh-huh. So, uh huh. So. But but yeah, that uh, we uh, I learned a lot from both of them too. But uh, yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> guess, let's start a little bit on comedy, man. So Justin, how'd you get into it? How'd you find it? And like just as far as like the influence of Bill Hicks and um, some of those cats. 
Um, yeah, um, yeah, as far as comedy, I'm actually, Johnny and I probably have this in common. I mean, as a child, I think the, you know, the first comedy that really made me lose my shit was Jim Carrey movies. Was that, oh, yeah. that early run, uh -huh, Ace Venture, yeah. Dumb and Dumber, yeah. you know, Liar, Liar. The Mask. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, that was sort of, you know, the groundwork for, mm. okay, this is what's really funny. This mm. is what's great comedy. You know, at the time, in my young, pre-adolescent, adolescent mind, whatever. Mm. Mm. And um, not really a lot of stand-up. I mean, obviously, you know, living in the South, Jeff Foxworthy was yeah. a... The a, very first comedy show A ubiquitous presence. You couldn't yeah. get away from him. Yeah. And so, yeah, all the whole, you might be a redneck if, X, Y, Z, you know, as a kid, I found that funny. Um, but as far as like, as far as stand up, I really didn't delve heavily into stand up until I got into college. And the first stand up comedian that just really, as an adult, just really made me lose my shit was Lewis Black. Okay. Oh, yeah. Which actually, going back a little, a little bit earlier. I was a huge fan of The Daily Show starting in middle school, even to the point where he always did segments. I mean, I even started watching in the pre-John Stewart era, which most people probably don't know existed, but Craig Kilborn, he was the original host before John Stewart. Oh, oh yeah, wow. I don't know oh, about that. Yeah, I mean, before John Stewart took that and made it the cultural behemoth that it is today. Yeah, I mean, I was watching then, and Louis Black, he was on there as a correspondent from the beginning, doing oh, wow. his Back in Black segment. So, like, as, like, you know, 11, 12 years old, I'm just watching this really angry Jew who hates everything. <laughs> just, you, just, you just described his whole career. This is his whole career. I, I have a fondness for angry Jews who are, hate everything and are as funny as hell. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I mean, you know, like Larry David is my totem. Yeah, yeah. I defer to that guy always. I want to say, like, some of my first... Maybe the first film I saw Lewis Black in was that. Do y'all remember Justin Long was accepted? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was. It was really good. Yeah. And Lewis's black character. It was just hilarious. Yeah. Was you he know, like they, the dean? They hired him. Yeah. They hired him to come be the dean. Yeah. yeah. Oh, one of my favorite parts of that movie is like uh, it, they were kind of doing the montage of like how the school's growing, and then it just shows Lewis Black. He's in the middle, and he's just ranting, and he's just going on about how to be successful, being and an angry Jew, being an angry Jew, <laughs> and there's just like hundreds of people around him, and he's just getting into it, and then they're all cheering, and he's like. You know, yeah, it, that that yeah, that I think that was the first thing I ever saw him in, honestly, because I didn't really watch uh, any any of his uh, stand up or anything. I, I didn't really get into watching stand up comedy until really after I started hanging out with this dude, because like he said, growing up, the only comics or comedy that we knew of was the blue collar guys. Yeah, man. But I mean, I got I got nothing against them personally. It I was don't... just it was just that thing that. That, I love that's, Ron White. I love Ron Ron, White. Yeah, Ron White. If there's any of them that I've taken anything from, is he is Ron one of my White. favorites. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I was a kid, he was my least favorite. I guess it's because I wasn't old enough to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you know, it was like you might be a redneck with Foxworthy, and then mm -hmm. um, what was it? Here's your son. Yeah, Bill Ingvall. Yeah. yeah. See, and that was the thing. They kind of had their their sticks. That's kind of what they went for as far as their style of comedy. 
and then uh, with Ron White too, what stuck with him was the tater salad thing, and that was actually mm-hmm. the name of one of his specials. Yeah, I mean, I but that that was only game. Yeah, that was yeah. one special, and that was just one bit from that special. Yeah, exactly. Like, that wasn't a thing that he just kept you know doing. Right, and doing, but yeah. that was the thing that they labeled. Yeah, yeah, but that's what they call me. <laughs> Tater because yeah, exactly. it's it's like everybody that was in that blue collar group. Yeah. It's like they had to be identified by like a certain thing. Right. And then of course Larry Cable got get her done and everything. Mm-hmm. So but yeah, that was um... you mean Dan Whitney. <laughs> I didn't think that was ever gonna leave. I remember being in high school and that blowing yeah. up, and then it was oh, they sold millions and millions of re- it was like uh, albums, stickers on the back of windshields, yeah. and yeah. they had a TV show, yeah. Comedy Central. Because in, in the mid two thousands, like the two big forces in comedy, were basically unless my bearing is off, unless my memory fails me, it was blue collar comedy and Dane Cook. Yeah, yeah, Dane and Cook. he got outed, man. I miss his stuff though. He what? he's been kind of he's trying to make a comeback, but his uh, he's kind of fell into From the a, same yeah. thing that kind of Schumer's going through with the joke theft and whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. the, that was that was handled differently, but but also a lot of people didn't. Like his persona, like the you know, like how he all put put himself out there, like the kind of the kind of guy he was, mm-hmm. yeah. and he did. He got crazy popular because I remember the same thing like he said because that's what sticks out in my mind. Thinking back then, is him and when he did his vicious circle special, and then all the movies he was in. It was he was in a bunch of rom coms. Yeah, and he and was stuff. always the same guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Good luck, Chuck, and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. And so you at that time, like whenever mid mid two thousands at the height of his popularity. Mm-hmm. Like I said, that was around the time when I really started as an adult getting into serious stand up comedy. So I'm mm-hmm. listening to Lewis Black, I'm listening to Dave Chappelle, George Carlin, mm-hmm. you know, Bill Hicks, all around that time. Yeah. I'm taking in all these, you know, massive influences. Yeah. Some of the greatest comedians that have ever lived. And you passed that and on to like, me. You know, <laughs> so I was ignorant. <laughs> so like I'm looking at what I'm getting into and right. what I'm getting out of it. Uh-huh. And like I'm you know, Comparing it to what's popular at the time, Dane Cook and fucking Larry the Cable Guy, yeah. and I'm like, these people are the antichrist of comedy. I want <laughs> nothing to do with them. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, this is the dumbing down of America. They are here to destroy our civilization. They're here to destroy <laughs> comedy. We need to stop them at all costs. I mean, now yeah. my feelings have mellowed. Yeah. yeah, back then everything was us or them. Yeah. You know, well, but, it just goes to show you they were promoting what they knew was making money. Mm-hmm. But you still had comics at the time too. That were still being extreme, that were still extremely successful. Just they were kind of shadowed in because they were selling out arenas. They were selling millions and millions of copies of albums and DVDs and everything. And then the money and then the the, the movies and stuff. It, it just kind of got overshadowed. They kind of overshadowed overshadowed everybody else at the comedy store. Or who else has been doing stand up? Mm-hmm. And then after that died down, these other guys have been coming, you know, making their way back out. So yeah. I remember, it's kind of like what y'all were talking about with like growing up and having this, uh, you know, this group of friends. I remember the first time that I finally saw Dave Chappelle's show. Oh, really? And (laughs) we were all, it was just our group and it was like the first night I'd ever seen this and I was like, sketch comedy might be the greatest thing in the world. Mm -hmm. And he's the the king of it. Mm -hmm. Because Key and Peele, right when he stepped out, they stepped in and I was like, this is just not as good. 
Yeah. Both of them very talented, yeah. but I just yeah. don't like it as much. But see, they also, they came from the Mad TV days also, mm-hmm. didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. So they they were familiar with it, but then it was just now they had yeah. the opportunity to just do their own thing. And the way that Mad TV was the lesser version of SNL, Key and Peele was the lesser version of Chappelle's <laughs> yeah. show. Yeah. I hate saying that. I love those yeah. guys, but. I mean, yeah. Yeah. That literally, Chappelle's show is the single greatest sketch comedy show of all time. Right. I mean, when, when you look at just, I mean, it, only, it was only two seasons. Yeah. And look at the impact that it has. How many people still quote that show? It, it, I, I still quote yeah. that show, like, on a daily basis. Some, yeah. And it's not even sketch, a cult. whatever. Yeah, it's not even a cult following. It's like, cult following is still, like, a small niche. But, because this is, everybody has seen The Chappelle Show. Yeah. You know, it's not just, oh, this certain group that has some pop. No, it's everybody. You know, when somebody goes, Unity! You yeah, know what they're yeah. talking about. Exactly. Or Charlie Murphy! Like, <laughs> they know. Like, everybody knows. Like, fuck your couch! <laughs> it was, yeah, and you just sit here, and we literally just quote it all day. And you can quote anything. And now anything. I'm reliving it in my mind. I'm just seeing that scene. Yeah. It just... <laughs> you could, yeah, and you Grinding just. Grinding dirty cowboy boots. And you could just like, and it's like any, you can quote almost anything, not even the Charlie Murphy stories, but almost any sketch from there, from, you know, any, any of it. And like people automatically know what you're talking about, you know, uh, but David Hose, Hose David. Yeah. I, uh, I didn't get to, I didn't get to watch any of that. The oh Tom's, shit, that's Wayne Brady, son. <laughs> is Wayne Brady going to have to choke a bitch? <laughs> this podcast is immediately in hijack. It's just going to be an hour of Chappelle show. <laughs> Bunch of, bunch of pasty white dudes <laughs> doing impressions from the Chappelle show with southern accents. Yeah, that's gonna go over well. <laughs> but uh, but but yeah, but yeah, that was the same thing. And I didn't see, I didn't get to watch stuff like that because the times that we did have cable or satellite, we did have Comedy Central. So I would, I it was one of those things like uh, I felt like I was you know a kid and you had to wait till your parents go to sleep and they had to get up and you know, watch a nudie movie or whatever, but in my case, being the kid that I was, I was watching Comedy Central. So that was also... Like, in, ooh, South Park. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, because we were... I was told... Like, my mom, like, thought, told me never watch any of that. And, um, like, she thought... She still, to this day, she thinks The Simpsons is the most vulgar, vulgar TV show to ever be produced on TV. And I'm like, Mom. <laughs> like... There's so much more. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and... uh you know, so yeah, I dipped into South Park and some of these other shows. And some of them were just kind of crazy to me, like I didn't understand what was going on. And uh, but but yeah, I, I started to dip into that, and I remember I vaguely remember watching certain specials, like you know, Comedy Central used to have a thing. Uh, I don't know if they still do or not, but they'll do like Comedy Central presents, and it'll be like a short mm-hmm. special or something. I think they still do. Oh yeah. And uh, but I remember I remember watching those. I remember bits and pieces, but like who they are, like the people that are doing, I I couldn't tell you. Like who I just remember, you know, certain bits and stuff, and um, just faces. But uh, it's, it's it's a weird thing. But it's yeah. I don't think it's anybody. It could be people that are still doing comedy today. I don't know. But um, but yeah, but I really didn't get back into it, uh, heavy into it until I started hanging out with this guy. And uh, and then he's the one that introduced me. Like we, were, you know, we were. Uh, I think the first bit you showed me. I forget how the subject came up, but uh, you were you told me about Bill Hicks, and he was like, and you were like, man, you ever heard of Bill Hicks? I said no. He said, man, this guy was a comedian back in the '90s, the '80s, and the '90s, and he's buried in fucking Green County. And I'm like, 
what? And then uh, the first bit that you showed me or we listened to was this bit about crosses. And I was just like, holy shit. Like, oh, mm. wow, like this type of comedy. Like, I never heard anything like anything against religion or anything like that because if I was to even remotely come close to any of that, I, I it would have been over with for me. I would have been grounded for life or, yeah. you know, yeah. something something to that effect. And that's so. a fairly mild bit. Yeah, I know, I know. Had you seen that bit before you uh, had the, Jesus your thing. aunt? I mean, I think this was a joke that you used in your stand-up about uh, the Christmas. Oh yeah, no, I, I, that was a, that was, that happened, that was a, you know, this that was, was a real, this was, yeah, this was six or seven years ago, because, uh, it, I know I wasn't, tw- I wasn't 21 very long, because I was, I mean, I was old enough to drink, but, but yeah, that, that, uh, that actually happened, we were at my, my grandmother's house, and, um, which was Nanny's house, mm. my grandma Wanda lives there now, we were at Christmas, and, uh, I um, I was, was having a cigarette with my cousin, and my cousin told me, he said, you want a beer? And I was like, and I don't drink in front of the family. Normally mm-hmm. I don't, but at this particular time, I was like, you know what, fuck it. Yeah, I'll have a beer with you. So we had a beer, and we're having a cigarette, and his mother comes out there, my aunt. Her name is Karen, by the way. Perfect. So you already see where this is going. <laughs> and she, <laughs> so she comes out there, and she sees us, and she says, what are you boys doing? And we were like, Nothing. And he's like, are y'all out here? She's like, are y'all out here drinking beer? And we're like, yeah. My cousin goes, yeah, mama, you want one? She goes, she goes, no, I don't want a beer. Y'all ought to be ashamed of yourselves. Y'all are out here drinking beer and on Christmas, on Jesus' birthday. <laughs> and I was like, well, hell, we're celebrating. Well, hell, let's I check at his supper. He was turning water into wine, wasn't he? And, he, and she didn't like that. She did not like that. Not at all. Wine. And I meant it jokingly. And then she was like, that's blasphemous. And she stormed off. Well... Later that day, she texts me, and um, it went and you know, Merry Christmas, it was good to see you, how's your mom and them doing? It was like, hey, I got only got one question for you. You believe in God? Do you even believe in God? And so, I haven't come out to any of my family as my beliefs as far as being atheist or whatever, mm-hmm. and um, but I saw an opportunity to let her know, so, <laughs> so I text her back. In the most comedic way possible. I text her back, <laughs> and I said, hell, Satan. <laughs> <laughs> That was four years. That was like six, seven years ago. I haven't heard from her since. <laughs> she never texts me. She doesn't get invited to family Christmases either more. Yeah, you know. should have taken the more diplomatic route like I do and just say I I consider myself a spiritual free agent. <laughs> then they would have been like, "What have you been smoking? What have you been smoking? You've been smoking the devil's, the devil's lettuce. lettuce." Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, but you know, I don't, I don't gloat about it or you know, do it, say anything to intentionally hurt somebody's feelings or anything. You know, it's just, I was, I didn't even mean it in a disrespectful way. You know, I was just, you know, haha, just uh, get it, you know, you know. But they, they, so if I watched anything remotely close to that, I, it, you know, it, uh, it would have been over with for me. Like nothing cut off. We were already sheltered as it was. Don't get me wrong. My parents did the best that they could, but when I started learning about other things outside, you know, in the world, because we didn't even have the internet, you mm-hmm. know, my, my parents saw that as a uh, as a toy, you know, they didn't really see a necessity or a need for it. A tool of Satan. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, see, my dad was afraid, was afraid that me and my brother were going to wind up like Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be behind a computer all damn day. I mean... <laughs> 
I can see his point. Yeah, I see his point, but like when it came to me doing schoolwork... The fear of Anthony used to hang over everything. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Especially my dad was like, oh, my, my, my boys aren't going to turn out like that. No, so... Well, we didn't. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. <laughs> Have you seen your mother, baby, standing in the shadows with a look of indecision on her face? Have you ever wondered how she looked when she was younger and decisions weren't things she had to make? Did you see your father, baby, there beside your mother? Laughing with his arm around the waist Have you ever wondered how they were when they were younger And the only thing they had to lose was faith Maybe in a tell the lights when 
of comedy and I learned started learning about different types of comedy, learning that there's more than just get her done and you know and and, and you know and then, like I said he was, Kim was big like oh you need to listen to these guys mm-hmm. so yeah my my as Bill Hicks would say my third eye was squeegee cleaned from then on mm-hmm. so and then uh, not only just that but just like me and him we'd also talk about you know uh, movies and too because uh, when I when I left the jail. When I, I was I was a prison guard, everybody that's listening, I went and locked up. Um, <laughs> I uh, when when I when I quit when I quit doing that, um, when I first went to college, uh, I wanted to go to school for filmmaking. So, and because uh, that's what I wanted to do, because just me and him would talk about it. And I was like, dude, like I got all these ideas I would do. Like I would love to get into that and learning how to do that. So, you know, I and I just. Did a, I don't know, 380, whatever, or 180. I don't know. I don't know fucking math. Um, <laughs> I just, like, I turned I just, around. Yeah, I turned around. I turned around. I, did, I quit doing law enforcement and everything, and I just realized that's just not what I want to do. Mm-hmm. So, and then I started, you know, expanding, expanding my my uh, my ideas and such. So Well, let's move there, man. Let's talk about film work for a, for a while, because, I mean... Just some of the posts Justin's made is like it's turned me on to different films that I probably mm-hmm. wouldn't have found or known to check out. Oh yeah, and talk about people like Werner Herzog, yeah, and uh, just different cats like that. Let's mm-hmm. move off there, man. So, I mean, being I'm, I'm from a small town in mm-hmm. Northwest Alabama, and uh, it's like you have to find people who are actually yeah. into this kind yeah. of stuff. You got to find a guy. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, how did that, how that happen, Justin? It's like, how did you get that stuff? Yeah, the thing with film, man, like, i tell you what happened was, I guess it was around, yeah, it's got to be around 1999, whenever the Phantom Menace <laughs> I knew you were going to say the Phantom Menace. <laughs> Dude, I shit you not, my love of film, or like, obviously I like movies before that. Right, right. But, like, the path to me becoming, like, this, you know, like, whatever, cinephile, what have you, just, you know, obsessed with films, it started in 99, Phantom Menace is coming out, I got wrapped up in the hype, you see, I mean, come on, everybody ever seen that trailer for the first time? Oh, God, yeah. That was the first Star Wars movie I ever saw in theaters. Incredible. The visuals in that film are still incredible. And that's... That is a whole other conversation. Oh, yeah, my, yeah. My, my defense of the prequels. Yeah, same. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, it's okay. So it started... We'll get into that for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, so... Four, five, six. I remember as a kid watching those. Mm-hmm. But uh, one, episode one, I remember watching that Star Wars film probably more than any other. Yeah, mm-hmm. I did too. And then as I got older, I went back and watched it. And I was like, this just isn't good. Mm-hmm. And then I sit down with a Star Wars fan... And we're watching episode one. Mm-hmm. And he was just going into it. He was like, this might be the best one. Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm-hmm. interesting. And as he starts breaking down like Star Wars, and I was like, I thought it was just hard garbage. So let's mm-hmm. let's talk about this. It is interesting. Now, um, I guess it's just because of the passage of time. Mm-hmm. I came in and I started off obviously four, five, and six. Right. That's... I mean, that's always going to be, like, my original Star Wars, just because of when I was born. I'm the product of my time, like a lot of people are. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, the prequels, like, I saw, you know, I was, like, 13, 12, 13, when The Phantom Menace came out, and I remember, 
my expectations were, it was like, eh, it didn't live up to the hype, but I mean, I don't think any film could have lived up to the hype of The Phantom Menace. I mean, that was the cinematic equivalent of the second coming of Christ yeah. for anybody. Because you gotta remember, too, it was like, what, 20 years when, in between uh, Return of the Jedi? Years. 16 years. And it's like, Lucas has not made any more stars. He's already, he'd hardly made any films. He'd yeah. done, you know, the, the, you know, after Jedi, he did Temple of Doom and Last Crusade. Right. And he did that, the, the Willow movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fine. Val Kilmer. Was it Val Kilmer? Yeah, it was Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer. Yeah. And uh, Warwick Davis, who played yeah. Wicked. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he had done a lot, and then, you know, he did the special editions, and... It's, it's kind of like... People bitch about those. It's kind of the, the equivalent of when Dave Chappelle came back and did a special. You know, he... Yeah, after, I can see that. Yeah, after Chappelle's show, like, he went, out, you know, went to Africa... Mm-hmm. 10 years didn't really do anything he'd do stand up small places he'd just show up and do stand up mm-hmm. but when his special got announced the Netflix broke like it was like holy shit you know it, but yeah but, and see like you were talking about like your expectations for the movie see and this is our age difference because the movie came out in 99 I was 8 mm-hmm. and you said you were 13 12, yeah, 13. 12 13 see I was just that was the very first Star Wars movie I went, ever went to go see. Now, before that, the only movies that I saw in theaters, which was the very first movie I ever saw, was Batman Forever. <laughs> so, which that kicked off my love of Batman and everything, too. Yeah, you, you know? never got to see Jurassic Park in theaters. No, I didn't. You missed out. I did. You missed out. I did. <laughs> but, uh... I gotta rub that in your face. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> but, yeah, but, like, for me, watching it was... You know, I'm like, I, and I didn't really understand at first. Another kid at school who was a bigger nerd than I was, uh, he had more information. He was kind of like the inside guy. He was telling me, he said, no, this is what happened before, before Luke. And I was like, oh, okay. So I had that idea. And it was just, uh, it was new to me because I didn't know what to expect, really. You know, but uh, it, but my big thing for me was the, the lightsaber duels. Uh, Darth Maul showing up. Young Obi-Wan Kenobi and how, you know, and Obi-Wan is my favorite uh, uh, Star Wars character, Not period. Too, man. And yeah. it's, so seeing that, that that battle between them two, because before then, and that's what Lucas wanted to do, he wanted to have the prime of the Jedi. Because before then, we just saw Luke versus Vader and Vader versus Obi-Wan. Yeah. And it was, wasn't a whole lot of, it was more of... What's that Lucas quote? It's like, it's like, yeah, back in the original films, all you saw was uh, robots and sort of, you know, there's little men fighting one another very slow. Yeah. We're not going to do that. It's going to be the prime of the Jedi. They're yeah. going to be flying. They're going to be superheroes. Yeah. <laughs> so, but like watching that, 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 it's still, like, it chokes me up every time because when, when that music starts playing Duel of the Fates and Darth Maul shows up and we see a two-bladed lightsaber, I, I crap myself and then just that it kicks off and it's just dun 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 and they just go into it just that whole that whole fight scene alone just with them was just that that's what really you know and I was like me being the kid that learning martial arts and everything I was like I want a lightsaber I want to use a lightsaber oh so yeah nine movies in I can say now authoritatively single greatest lightsaber duel in the entire Star Wars saga yo hell yeah I agree with that 100% I, you know, people would come out and be like, no, Luke, Luke and Vader at the Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. No. I mean, it was still good. Uh, but, but Duel of the Fates, though, 
you know that 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 whole that that to me is that 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 that's the best one out of them all. Yeah, I think. R.I.P. Qui Gun. Yeah, yeah. Pour one out. Pour one out. <laughs> but yeah, like, um, you know, even at the time, even though it didn't live up to expectations, mm-hmm. I never disliked it. Yeah. And like when I got it on video and watched it again, like when I got it, like when I got it, the VHS the day it came out, I think I watched that movie like three times. Yeah. And like I mean, I have issues with it. I mean, obviously Lucas is not Tarantino when it comes to writing dialogue. He never was. He never will be. Yeah. If you go, if you go back and read original reviews of Star Wars: A New Hope, critics trashed him for his wooden dialogue. Yeah. What did they do twenty two years later? They trashed him for his wooden dialogue. Yeah. It's all, I mean, look, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I don't go to Star Wars films to, to hear Shakespearean soliloquies. Yeah. <laughs> That's not what they're about. And no. I mean, when you look at, and now that we've seen the Disney Star Wars films, you know, and basically what they were trying to do was like, I mean, you know, they tried to completely change the format that Lucas set up for the prequels and his approach to films. They said, we're going to have more animatronics. Mm-hmm. You know, we're shooting on film again. It's like, okay. And, um, and yeah, I mean, they were basically doing... I mean, the, the J.J. film, there's a reason why they call it a, a sequel slash reboot. Mm-hmm. Is they were basically trying to whitewash everything that Lucas did with the prequels because of this overwhelming notion that all oh, these were terrible films that everyone hated because a few assholes were really loud on the internet. Mm-hmm. And uh, it kind of blew up in their face because it's like, you know, they're trying to pay for... I mean, it's the fan service trilogy, to, in, in my opinion, the sequel mm-hmm. trilogy. I mean, Ryan Johnson, he was doing some interesting things in Last Jedi that I know a lot of people didn't like. And, and you know, to be fair, I don't think any of those films are bad films. Mm-hmm. I just think that if it had been, I mean... If it had been Lucas still making those films, he would have gone in more interesting directions than what those films were. Yeah, they were basically trying to remake four, five, and six. Yeah, and then you and watch you watch uh, uh, seven. I mean, it's basically mm-hmm. the plot set up the same yeah. way as A New Hope. And I mean, yeah. looking back at the prequel trilogy through that lens, seeing as what Disney tried to do as opposed to what Lucas was doing with his films, and like Episode Two. There's a lot of stuff in that film that I like. I mm-hmm. adore Christopher Lee in that movie. I mean, you know, to yeah. me, that man can do no wrong. If Christopher Lee shows up in a movie, and also, I mean, and there's just small details. Like, we'll take this because I could talk about Christopher Lee forever. But, you know, it's, it's known that, you know, Christopher Lee was in the Hammer Horror film series, did a lot of, you know, Dracula films, Frankenstein, The Mummy, did a lot of those films, co-starring with Peter Cushing, who played Grand Moff Tarkin, in episode four and there's a shot in episode two it's one of the first shots you see of Christopher Lee when he's on uh, he's on Geonosis and he's at that round table and he's sitting there at the head of the round table and the camera is panning around the table at all the different characters while he's having this you know commanding dialogue with them and it's the exact mirror of one of the first scenes you see in A New Hope with Peter Cushing oh I didn't think this about actor, that you know the one actor that he's been most identified oh with. Oh my god, I didn't even think about yeah. that. That's like the first opening where, where it shows every, you know, and they're like, this is the most powerful yeah. space the station. The last remnants of the Old Republic have been swept away. Yeah. Yeah, that scene. 
But yeah, I mean, I just oh, like small man. details. You just blew my mind. Yeah. I just like small details that Lucas put in there like that. These films are not as shallow. It's at all. It's just a video game. No, there's more depth to these films. I mean, and to me, like, I mean, people can shit on some of Hayden Christensen's acting. Yeah. But, like, the scene where he goes and lays waste to the Tuscan Raiders oh, after yeah. his mother dies, that's a great scene. That was. And there, to me, it's one of the rawest yeah. scenes emotionally in any of the Star Wars yeah. films. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I will, I will gladly debate anyone on that. Yeah. For these films that say, oh, they're wooden, there's no emotion, there's no character development, there's no plot. No, there was, man. Yeah. That, I mean, the whole, how does the Republic become an empire? How do good yeah. people turn bad? Yeah. There's more of a narrative arc in the prequel trilogy than maybe any of the other yeah. six films. I mean, I do, yeah. like, people, people shit on... This is on, how Darth Vader became yeah. Vader. Yeah, and people shit... Uh, this is how a man who, who, but. who thought he was going to be Jesus turned into Hitler. I mean, Yeah. And, and you know, people, like You're you said... are supposed to be the they, chosen one. Yeah. <laughs> and people... And, and that was another scene, too. Yeah, like, you want to talk about Raw. That's high was, drama, man. Was Obi-Wan Kenobi, where he just breaks down. He says, you're the chosen one! Like, he, he got into... You McGregor's a fantastic actor anyway, but... But seeing that too, and growing up with those movies too, because like I said, that was the first Star Wars movie I saw in theaters. So by the time three came out, I'm not gonna lie, Order sixty six, I was crying. Like that, y'all make fun of me all you want, but when they oh yeah, kill a little, well, I'm getting chills right now. Man. Yeah, Just like when, when they just the way they shot it, it's a genocide. It of was them. yeah, and I, for me with Star Wars is the Jedi Order and in the uh, the original trilogy, we just know what Obi Wan told Luke about him. And that was it. Mm-hmm. And then, but getting to see the Jedi Order and the Council, and of course Samuel Jackson show up, and just like how the Order was and how they operated, and then getting to see them, and you do get attached to some of some of the characters in a way, you know. And and then, but like Order sixty six, when that happened, that was another one. But also with Hayden Christensen though, is uh, like he turn him turning into Vader. Uh, the one scene, uh, you know, when they storm the Jedi Temple, Ooh. and then you, you know the look on his face too when he, you know, when he goes into the room with the younglings, like he he looks like a man that he doesn't want to do this, like he's got tears in his eyes, but he knows he has to. And then uh, then the scene where he goes to Mustafar, and then he kills all of the all of the uh, uh, Newt Gunray and all the rest of the uh, the separatists. And he's kind of standing there, and he's got his hood on, and he's just sitting there, and he's just crying because he just. I think. I think inside he knows that Anakin Skywalker is dead, and he, there's a part of him that didn't want to let that go because he knows what it means to, to to let go of that life. So that that was another scene for me that just like, you know, just you see it, you see it. It's just it's just more like he said, it's a raw. Raw, raw scene that you see that you know we haven't really seen that in the. I don't think we've seen that in the, the newer no, ones. Disney, Disney, the whole killing off the younglings, all that. Yeah. Like Anakin Skywalker being immolated. Yeah. Disney ain't never gonna go that hard in their movies. Yeah. We all know it. Yeah. I tell you another what's also crazy too that I found out. I just saw it, it was it was something that I saw on Facebook and then uh, I was like oh I wonder so apparently. Uh, in the scene where, um, which is simultaneously the scene that Luke and Leia are being born, they're being born, but also Vader's being born. He's Anakin's going through everything, and he's getting the suit put on him. Um, 
right before yeah. right before the mask falls onto his face, his last breath that you very you vaguely hear it. Right before the mask shuts down, you hear him say, "Pad may help me," and then that mask shuts, and then it kicks up. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, you didn't know that. No. I, I I saw that and I was like, that that can't be true. And I went back and I listened to it and I listened to it and I was like, I can hear it. Mm. Now I don't know if it was a placebo effect, but you you can. There's a guy on YouTube that took the sound and amplified it to where you can hear him. It's like he's exhaling out his last breath. He's exhaling out and he says, "Padme, help me," mm. and then it shuts. Yeah. So, it, you know, little things like that, you, you just, that Lucas put into there, because he, you, you could tell he cared so much about these well, it's his characters. World. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and I know that had to have been extremely hard for him to pass that off to somebody else, or, or at least to see what they've done with them since, but still having the sense yeah. of knowing that, okay, they own these characters, they're going to still do their own thing. So, no, no. You don't think. <laughs> You know what you know what Lucas's original plan was before he before he outright sold off the company to Disney uh-huh. before they before the sequel trilogy was started. Uh-huh. His plan was he himself was going to make Episode Seven, write and direct Episode Seven. Right. Then he was at then after he completed that he was going to sell the company and send mm. it off. To me, I mean, God knows what would have happened with eight nine in that scenario, but I have much. Prefer that scenario. That would, that would have been that would have been interesting. But yeah. Disney would have known. Okay, all right. Well, we're starting a new trilogy. Whatever he does, we have to branch off of that. And they didn't want to do that. They wanted to take over from the beginning. So they would try to take a lot of anything that had his fingerprint on it. Still, they wanted to they wanted to get rid of it. Lucas involvement. It's original stories. It's different stuff. Just using the world basically. So I had a feeling when they took over, I knew I said they're gonna they're gonna get rid of. After I saw Seven and with Han Solo, I was like they're gonna because you know Harrison Ford got tired of it anyway. He probably wanted that to happen to him anyway. <laughs> Can't you just kill off Han Solo already? Yeah, but uh, but I had a feeling like they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna start cutting. They're gonna start cutting these characters out. Um, Isn't there been in every Lucas film ever made? What? Uh, Han Solo, uh, isn't Harrison Ford? Harrison Ford has he been in every Lucas film ever? Um, <laughs> he's been in a lot of them, like because he mm. was he wasn't in Lucas's first film, uh, THX 1138, but um, he had a bit part in American Graffiti, yeah, which Lucas did right before Star Wars. THX 38 was his uh college, yeah. Well, he film, wasn't it? Yeah, um, he did it as a short, and then um, um he met up with Francis Coppola. And those two came in cahoots with one another. They started, uh, Coppola started his company, American Zoetrope. Oh, okay. They made THX 1138. Um, they put Robert Duvall in it because, I mean, you know, that's, yeah. obviously he's been associated with Coppola for a long time. This was, right. This was pre-Godfather. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, um, so yeah, like, he does that movie, it bombs. He does American Graffiti because Francis was like, you need to make just a lighthearted comedy. He's like, make yourself make a lot of harder comedy. Just don't, don't do this like dystopian science fiction. And uh, he's like, well, okay, I'll see what I can do, with Francis. <laughs> and so yeah, like uh, Harrison Ford was casting a bit part in American Graffiti, and um, and then like he showed when Lucas is doing Star Wars, and uh, he's working out of the Zoetrope offices in San Francisco, and he's trying to cast the movie, and like, like dude. 
we can we can do a whole podcast about the actors that were <laughs> that were considered for Han Solo. Yeah, yeah. Okay, one of them being Christopher Walken. Yeah, I want to see that movie. <laughs> Jack Jack Nicholson. Oh my god. Jeez. Uh, Tom Selleck. No, that was Indy. Oh, that was Indy. Yeah. That's right. That's oh, right. Uh, oh, Hapchino. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I want to see, I want to go to the alternate universe where Al Pacino is Han Solo. I, I want to see the Christopher Walken one. That one too. Just because of the cantina scene. Yeah, but so yeah, like, there's all these big actors that are being considered, and Ford was a nobody at that point. He was, yeah. like, literally, I mean, he was a carpenter. Ford yeah. was an actor, so he's doing some carpentry work. He was for, already in his 30s, too. Yeah, he was yeah. already, he was doing some carpentry work for Coppola, and Lucas is like, hey, Ford, what are you doing up there? I got this part I want you to read for. So Harrison reluctantly comes down and reads for the part that makes his career. Yeah. So they do Star Wars, they do Empire, and then Lucas is getting with Spielberg to make Raiders. They have Tom Selleck cast as Indy already, but mm-hmm. then somebody from CBS comes over and says, wait, we have a contract with Tom Selleck to do this show called Magnum P.I. Tom can't be in your film. So they're like, crap, what do we do now? We've lost Tom Selleck, who are we going to have as Indy? And uh, Steven was the one that suggested to George, he said, um, he said why don't you cast Harrison? And at first, Lucas, he said, you know, he said, Stephen, I've already had him in, like, th- three or four of my movies. You know, I don't want this guy to be my Bob De Niro, referring to, you know, Bob De Niro and Scorsese, all the movies they did together. I don't want ev- to have every movie that I make star Harrison. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I mean well, he, obviously he's the right choice. Yeah. yeah. Well, technically, I mean, Steven Spielberg directed directed uh, Indy, so I know yeah. I know George wrote him, but... Uh, but yeah, it's his yeah. character. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But uh, that's, just that's how I think, think about like yeah. uh, Lucas's films, man. It's almost like a Tarantino thing because you know Tarantino usually picks from the same tree with most oh, of his yeah. films. And, you, and, and, and you're gonna another, see Leo. You're gonna see yeah. Pitt. You're gonna see Samuel Jackson. Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. yeah. You're gonna you're gonna see those guys, and it's like different roles. Yeah. And, uh, Christopher Nolan does the same thing. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a lot of actors. Uh, Tim Burton with Johnny Depp. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, I mean, wish they would do another movie together. Yeah. It's been a while. Yeah, I uh, Johnny Depp is on a weird. Mm-hmm. He's got some flack at him right now. Yeah, like, well, he's in that the divorce. And yeah, this. the ongoing thing with him and his ex-wife, where she came out about four years ago and claimed that Johnny Depp hit her, mm-hmm. and um, like had pictures of what appeared to be a bruise, and mm-hmm. but then at the time, people were coming out saying like, and. Like, this is how I treat any, like, public this, scandal. Like, this was the hype of the Me Too movement, too, right? This was a little bit before. It was about a year before. Mm-hmm. But then it kind of, you know, bled over because it's been this ongoing thing. And uh, cases like that, I always say, if it's multiple women accusing one man, there's probably fire where there's smoke. Yeah. If it's just one woman accusing one man of a thing, and there's all these other women that have had relationships with man said... He absolutely never was inappropriate to me. You know, that's when you got to say, eh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't really check out. You know, and um, yeah, they're in a. Apparently, Johnny Depp has all this surveillance footage and all these recordings where she admits to hitting him. Like, hit him yeah. with a vodka bottle. Yeah, wine bottle. What was it? Burn him with a cigarette butt and just. Yeah. Insane. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a lot of reports, uh, stuff coming out too from her, from the uh, you know she was in the Aquaman movie. Not she know played that. yeah she plays Mira, which is Aquaman's wife. Uh, and uh, there was a lot of a lot of stuff coming out from there too, from people being on set about how she treated people 
you know, and her passive aggressive or, or threatening manners that mm-hmm. she had. There's there's a there's a lot going on so with she's that. Like, also. She's like Ellen. <laughs> that's, that's where I was about to go. It's, yeah. It seems like since you know the quarantine, it's like uh, there's been so much just coming out of all these you know Hollywood people like Ellen. She just totally treats her yeah. staff and everybody like trash. She's a garbage person. Yeah. Quarantine has hyper accelerated cancellation. Yeah, for <laughs> I, real. I have noticed this because I I tend to hang out in a particular pit of hell and doom known as Twitter, <laughs> <laughs> and Twitter tells me things. Yeah. yeah. But uh, a lot of it not good. Yeah, <laughs> it's a brush fire.
That was The Blips, Inside Out. The song before was Justin Peter Kinkelschuster, Educated Guesses. We're hopping right back in on conversations about Werner Herzog. Yeah, man, uh, Werner Herzog, uh, one of our great living filmmakers, and today is his 78th birthday, by the way. Um, How do you say happy birthday in German? I have no idea. <laughs> this guy's sound angry. But, like, if you... <laughs> If you were like, hey, Werner, happy birthday, he would be like, what is so happy about it? What is so happy about this day, which signifies one day, one year closer to infinite demise <laughs> and eternal darkness? <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> it's like he's in the room with us. The way he chooses to narrate his films. But yeah, I could do that impression forever and have been doing it for like the last 10 years. <laughs> so let's get into it. Just just growing up is crazy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, the thing about Werner, he was born in, you know, Germany in 1942 in the middle of World War II. Um, like, from what I've read, according to the reports, or at least what he has said, I mean, I don't know if he's embellishing his legend. I don't think he really has to. But uh, he claims that a bomb fell on his house when he was just a few days old. And, you know, that started a very um, somewhat traumatic upbringing in a post-war Germany in which the country had just been entirely decimated by the war. Um, On top of, you know, everyone alive at the time having to contend with the legacy of Nazism and the horrific things that uh, their country had done to the world. And, you know, specifically, you know, to... The Jews in Europe and mm-hmm. all of the other countless dead around the world. Um, and so, you know, he, he grows up very poor. Um, I think I once read where, like, he and his brother, like, they had to, in order to get something to eat, they had to learn how to shoot down crows to cook. And he, like, I think he said he didn't even know what a film was until he was maybe, like, 14 or 16 years old. But, like, as soon as he encountered you know, the magic of film, he knew that it was his destiny to become this filmmaker and just became this this thing that he would achieve by sheer force of will. And, um, you know, eventually he gets into films. Um, you know, his subjects, you know, he does documentary features. He does, you know, dramatic film. You know, he does fiction films. And, like, they're both similar in a lot of ways. Like, the document, like the documentary films, have a bit of embellishment to them. It's not straightforward. He does like to do sort of, you know, fantastic, crazy things in his documentaries. The way that I think he may even like direct the interviewees and how he wants them to perform for the camera. You know, he just doesn't. He doesn't just turn on the camera and just, you know, says, you know, fly with it. And um, and on that, you know, on the opposite side of that coin, his um his feature films, his fiction films have a very documentarian feel in a way to a lot of them. Um, I mean, like he uses a lot of handheld camera, for instance, like I was just rewatching his remake of Nosferatu the other night. And, um, you know, there's a lot of like handheld shots in that one that really wasn't like, that really wasn't a big thing in feature films at the time. Um, so that was interesting. And that was in the seventies. And another way that, you know, his films, his feature films are almost have a documentarian or whatever approach to them is because the making of the films themselves 
was such an epic ordeal. Like, I mean, you know, he's to take one film for example, Fitzcarraldo, which it takes place in the 19th century. It's about this uh, man. I believe I'm. Yeah, I'm assuming he has to be German, German, European, you know, whatever, who uh, finds himself in the middle of the Amazon jungle and he is hell-bent on building an opera house in the middle of the jungle. He wants to bring civilization into the heart of chaos. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, he sets about down the Amazon in this, you know, steamboat and he comes to a point where there's a mountain separating these two river streams. And so he realizes that the only way to get around it is he has to have the local natives help him to pull this ship over a mountain. And, I mean, that's a story point in the film, but as they were making the film, they actually had to hire local natives as extras to pull a very real ship over, the, over a mountain, an actual mountain in the middle of South America. And, um... It was a film that, like, literally Herzog could not get funding because he would go to the studios and he would describe to them, you know, oh, hey, Verner, you know, what's your plan for this film? You know, how are you going to, you know, pull this ship over a mountain? Are you going to use, like, a little model, special effects or whatever? And he would tell them, you know, he's like, no, we are not going to use models to pull this ship over a mountain. We are going to pull an actual ship over a mountain. And as soon as I told them that they would show me the door, they had no interest in mounting a production of this magnitude. So, like, it took him years to get it made. And, like, he finally starts shooting. He has um, the actor Jason Robards cast as the main character, Fitzcarraldo. Interestingly enough, um, this version of the film, he had a sidekick character um, who I believe was, like, some sort of mentally challenged... Uh, individual played by Mick Jagger of all people. Jesus Christ. So wow. Werner Herzog has this legendary actor Jason Robards and the biggest rock star in the world Mick Jagger in the middle of the Amazon rainforest shooting this insane epic. Uh, unfortunately they get about halfway through production. Jason Robards has a massive heart attack. Doctors say absolutely not you're finished you know you got to go back to LA. Um, at the same time, you know, the, the clock is ticking, Mick Jagger, unfortunately, has to go back to his day job. The Rolling Stones have a new tour coming up, so Mick goes to Werner, and so Werner is left in the middle of the jungle with a dick in his hand, and he's saying, how am I going to finish this film? Mm -hmm. And so he manages to go back to one of his old stalwarts, an actor named Klaus Kinski, who, uh, if anyone is familiar with his work... Uh, was a crazy person. It has been well documented on camera, behind the scenes of just these insane outbursts that he would have, literally out of the blue. Um, now, who's who's this guy? Like, what's some of his work that he's done? Ah, uh, Klaus Kinski. I don't know how well known he is to American audiences. I, th I mean, he was in for a few dollars more with Clint Eastwood. I think what else he would have been in. He did a Dracula film with Christopher Lee that I just saw not too long ago. He's pretty good in that. But like he's mostly known for his films with uh with Werner Herzog and just how crazy he was. Like I mean there's literally like there was a uh, behind the scenes documentary that was shot of Fitzcarraldo which has a lot of great a lot of great footage. And it just shows Kinski just flying off the handle just fuck you damn you. 
this place is like a fucking prison, blah, 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 the food is shit. I get remember this. you showing me that, you know, and they're just yelling at each he's other He's just yelling at each other, get this man out of my fucking face, da 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 you know, and Brian's like, please, Klaus, calm down, we have to finish the film, <laughs> fuck you, Werner, I will shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, he showed me that when he told me about Warner Herzog. And he was telling me, he went on this tirade about this movie, and he says, he said, you gotta watch this movie. It's just like, behind the scenes, it's just crazy. And then he shows me this video, and I'm just watching this, and they're like yelling at each other in German. I'm like, holy shit. Like, it's it's literally like, it's one of the, it's, it has to be one of the inspirations for Tropic Thunder. <laughs> like, I love that movie, man. I'm glad, I'm glad that came up. Yeah. Like, that... Like that and the behind the scenes of Apocalypse Now. Like, oh yeah, those are the two most insane productions. Like, has to be ever in film history. It's like, how the fuck <laughs> did these two films get made? Oh my god! And yeah, Tropic Thunder. Like they, like they had to like been watching Burden of Dreams, the Fitzgerald documentary, where it's like Burner's just like, uh, he's talking about the uh, the birds and just like how this place is just a a. a, a it's, this is just a, a dark, evil place. He says, "I hear the sound of I hear the sound of the birds singing." And to me, they are not singing. It sounds as though they are screeching in pain. He says, "This jungle to me is like overwhelming collective murder." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's I, it's it's next level shit. It's so great, and it's like. You know, when I first started getting into Herzog, and, like, I'm watching these, like, interviews, and it's like, how can you not love this guy? <laughs> like, this is a man, he has traveled to all seven continents to make films. He went to Antarctica to shoot a movie about, like, the people that work there, and about, like, how it represents, like, this represents the end of the world to him, and, like, what the planet's gonna become, and <laughs> he goes in this whole bit about how, like, the only sustainable life on Earth is sponges. I mean, the dude's the dude's fucking wild, <laughs> and he's also in the Mandalorian. <laughs> he is the would-be murderer of Baby Yoda. There, here we're back back to Star Wars. That's that that's that's where America. Full circle. Yeah. That's where America has learned to love Werner Herzog, is as the what is what's his name the client in the Mandalorian. Yeah. He is the man responsible for a practical Baby Yoda. Because he was giving interviews when the, when Mando came out, and he was saying about like how he would like he said I would see this little baby robot on set, and I would look at him and he was so heartbreaking, heartbreakingly beautiful, and they said at the time they were considering replacing him with the computer, with the computer generated character, and I said do not do that. I said keep the puppet. You if you do not, you are cowards. And they kept it. I mean, Werner, Werner scared him straight. And would Baby Yoda have been as popular as a CG character? Oh, my God. The world may never know. Never know. Oh, my God. So, yeah, that's a, that's an introduction to Werner Herzog. There you go. You have been well informed. Go to YouTube. Just look that motherfucker up. <laughs> Hours of fun. Anything else to do? Uh, well, movies, we can always hop right back, but I wanted to go music with y'all for a bit. Hey, man. Yeah. I'm all about music. It's mother great love. Yeah. So, real. man, give me, a, give me a feel for your taste. What are, what are you into? Oh, man. You know, like, I like to think of myself as, like, I'm into everything. Like, I mean, obviously, like, my primary wheelhouse, like, the stuff that 
like I'm closest to, like number one out of the gate, my single favorite artist of all time is David Bowie. Okay. I mean, like you know, after he like, it, I sort of came to that realization after he died, because it's like I knew that I would be bummed out like whenever he eventually died, but like when he did, like I was surprised how hard I took that. I text you. The, yeah, uh, you were the guy that you were the guy I got the news from, which yeah, is wild. Yeah, are you okay? I saw that. I was like, dude, and I was like, I, I was. It was almost one of those where I was like, do you need me to come over? Are you okay? <laughs> you need anything? Yeah. But it was like, but yeah, I remember seeing that, and that was the first thought that I had in my head. I was like, he is going to be devastated. You familiar with Lily Hyatt? Not. Okay, she's uh, out of Nashville. She has a song called The Not David Bowie Died. Oh, I have heard that. Yes. Tremendous song. Um, that's, and I think it kind of captures, like that, you know, the opening line in the song ca- mm-hmm. kind of captures like the way that it felt for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I wanted to call you The Not That David Bowie Died, but I just sat in my room and cried. Yeah. I'm not gonna lie, dude. I got up, like, I mean, I was just shocked. I looked at my, you know, I looked at my Twitter feed, Facebook, and it's just all him, yeah. you know, everybody shouting out their condolences and shock and whatnot. And, like, I, like, I didn't cry or anything. I was, I was just, like, in shock. I'm like, oh, my God, like, this dude just yeah. dropped a new record two days ago, and it was incredible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you start thinking about those music videos, and you're like, oh, mm. he was telling us that he was going to die. Yeah. And now it's like, okay, so I was like, I, I remember like he dropped that really weird Black Star video with all that occult imagery in it, and it's like I didn't know what that was about. Like there was like a, there was like an astronaut and a like a, a skeleton inside an astronaut suit and all this, and it's like, wait a second, that was Major Tom. Major Tom is dead now, mm. and just yeah. like just the urgency that was in that, like it felt like, okay. Like, when I first heard that song, I'm like, this is the best thing he's done since the 70s. Yeah. Like, this guy, he's on he's on something. Something, I don't know what this guy, I don't know, you know, what's happening with this guy right now. Mm-hmm. But, like, he is firing on all cylinders like he hasn't yeah. done in decades. Mm-hmm. He was, and he there was, was a, looking rough there towards the mm-hmm. end. There too. was a sense of, ur- and like, there was just this sense of urgency in the music. And it's like, when, you find, when, you, when we found out he died, it's like, yeah, it all makes sense now. When he battling cancer for mm-hmm. several years and nobody really knew about it except his son Duncan Duncan Jones. Yeah, or... few people knew. They said about a year and a half. About like, a year and a half. Yeah, right. and like hardly anybody knew. It was like one of those like kind of like Chadwick Boseman. That's right. That's he where just I was about decided. To go, right. He said, "I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm just going to fight this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to fight this battle alone." Yeah. The director of uh, Black Panther, you know, Owen Bosman, <clears throat> he said uh, he didn't even let the cast know. I mean, he yeah. he literally. He didn't tell. He just yeah. came in, did his work, yeah, and fought the battle silently. Yeah, yeah he was. Uh, that was tough too. Man. Mm-hmm. He was. A, he also. He again. He also got me into Bowie too, and uh, just you know, for the longest time, like for example, I've heard the song before under pressure, Queen, but didn't realize Bowie was in it. You know, and then uh, he got me into Bowie and listening. And then, of course, I've heard you. you know, he's like, "You've heard of Space Oddity, right?" And I'm like, "Yeah, of course." And that kind of introduced me into it later. And and then our two favorite bands combined because I'm a huge Pink Floyd fan. Mm-hmm. And um, and Bowie, uh, David Bowie was really close with uh, David Gilmore, uh, one of the the mm-hmm. guitar players and the singers for Pink Floyd. And they did a show together too. So that was. Uh, 
you know, and he showed me that too. And then I just, that kind of dipped me into getting more into Bowie because I didn't really know much about the dude, yeah. really. That The thing about David Bowie and, you know, mm-hmm. that era is when you look at your favorite musicians today mm-hmm. and then they tell you the people that they were listening to that yeah. inspired them, then you go and look. It's like a tree. Mm-hmm. Then you look at who inspired them. Mm-hmm. The road... Is it'll either be some old blues cat from Mississippi, you know that this is why I do this, or it's a cat like David Bowie. It's mm-hmm. like the cornerstone of yeah. today's music, mm-hmm. and a lot, a lot of people it just blows right by them. It's like if yeah. you're into this, you should definitely look at the influence because you're mm-hmm. gonna be into that. Yeah. He he heavily. I remember watching one interview that he did. I think it was with MTV, mm-hmm. where he was putting them through. He said, "Why aren't y'all?" showing if this is music television why are y'all not showing these other artists specifically from the african-american community or these other genres and they were like oh well, we're primarily this he said well, and he was basically saying he said his influences come from all over mm-hmm. yeah. so like and then you could definitely hear that in his music too because me being ignorant that I was with music and bands it was just like okay this is what this band sounds like that's what it always sounds like then you listen to artists like him and it's just I, I, I don't know how to explain it it's just he's just covered so much of what he wanted to do with his work I mean we were talking uh, outside when we took a break about just uh, the ability of music to go somewhere and that a lot of times uh, it doesn't have to be just one way. Right. It can have multiple levels and it can have multiple feels. And David Bowie was definitely, uh, I, w- I don't know about saying the first, but a pioneer uh, for that thought and doing it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he never repeated himself. Right. Right. You know, like once he you know, got what he wanted, once he you know, did what he wanted to do, what he wanted to say with one iteration of his work, okay, let's change it up, you know. Mm-hmm. I've done Ziggy Stardust. Let's kill off Ziggy. Let's do something else, you know. Let's go do an R&B record in Philadelphia with Luther Vandross. Yeah. You know, okay, I'm done with this. Uh, let me go over to Germany and record this weird electronic music with Brian Eno and do shit with Iggy Pop. Okay, I'm done with this. And I'll do this and that and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. He didn't keep himself confined unto his creative expression. And a great collaborator. I mean, like uh, you were just saying, he was always collaborating with, with different... I mean, we brought up Queen under pressure. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, Iggy Pop and... Mm-hmm. I mean, I love collaborations, man. Oh, yeah. And so what else, man? Uh, Tom York, Radiohead. Yeah, Radiohead. Like, my sort of, like, wheelhouse is, like, this weird, like, British British art rock guys. Like, Bowie, Radiohead, um, Brian Eno. Then you got, like, you know, stuff like Talking Heads, Joy Division, Velvet Underground, all Lou Reed stuff. And, um, but, like, also, I mean... Like, I'm really into, like, I don't, honestly, I will say, my second favorite artist of all time is from a completely different wheelhouse, and that's Willie Nelson. Yep. Like, oh, yeah. I adore that man. Oh, yeah. I mean, his music gives me chills, you know? Like, to me, that man is, like, America's single living greatest musician. He's one of the greatest songwriters we've ever produced. He's one of the most, I mean, he's one of the most, he has one of the most unique voices and he's an inc- a masterful virtuoso guitarist. I mean, when you hear Willie Nelson's guitar, you know it's Willie Nelson. Yeah. What else, man? Educate us on the, the Cure a little bit. Oh, the Cure, Cure. 
I mean, you know, like, I mean, they just, they come out of that time in, um, in British rock, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, they're a product of the punk movement. Mm-hmm. I mean, they come just right after, you know, the Sex Pistols, the Clash, the Damned, yeah, all those bands. So, like, you know, I mean, they're in the middle of all that, you know, like, they're in the studio next to Joy Division, who's recording something. And um, so, yeah, I mean, they started in, like, their early work, it's in a very similar vein to, like, a lot of, like, punk, post-punk work. And, um, and like, even, hell, I mean, even, like, Robert Smith, like, he's compared himself to, he said his early idea of what he wanted The Cure to be, like, he wanted to be, like, Elvis Costello. Which, I mean, like, if you hear, like, was it Three Imaginary Boys, like, the first album, like, there's... Some songs on there that have a Costello vibe to them, but then just like, you know, but then he just, almost like Bowie, he evolves. You know, he goes from that sort of early post-punk, you know, stuff to, you know, moving more into like a goth rock direction. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like he puts out, there's that three, there's a trilogy of albums that ends with that album, Pornography. What was it? I think it's 17 Seconds Faith and Pornography. And he's like, each one gets subsequently more goth, you know, like, you know, like, real, like, reverb, heavy, you know, just minimal guitar lines, whatever, et cetera, et cetera. And then it gets really dark with pornography. Like, it's, like, one of the darkest records they've ever made. And then at that point, he kind of, like, bottoms out. And he says, okay, I want to mix it up again. And then, like, starts moving into, like, she's, like, doing, like, these crazy pop songs that people didn't think he was capable of doing. And then just what's interesting with Robert Smith and The Cure is just how, over the years, back and forth, they've been able to go through, like, you know, they'll go from like these really, these really atmospheric, gloomy songs, and then they can do like these happy, upbeat, you know, pop songs. I mean, I mean and just like heaven. It. Yeah, and like everybody totally accepts it. Mm-hmm. Like nobody hates on like like the goths don't hate on him for it. Like I mean, you know, for example, like if Trent, you know, if Trent Reznor tried to do that with Nine Inch Nails, he would get so much shit. He did it with one song. Uh, it was called Everything. It was off of the album Hesitation Marks. It's the closest that Nine Inch Nails have ever come to making uh, to recording a happy song. Mm-hmm. And he got shit for it. It's like, no, it's great. It's like, I would like to hear him do more of this. But yeah, Robert Smith, he's the guy that got away with it. Still gets away with it. Yeah. And that's what I've always, I mean, that's what I've, I've always respected about him. What else? What else? <laughs> what, what other music? Mm, what I'm trying music? to pick your mind a little bit here. Oh, man. Uh... Dude, I don't know if I, I might get shit for this, but like, I've always been a really big Kanye West fan. <laughs> I am too. Like, I like him better as a producer. Like when he did uh, "Man on the Moon" with Kid Cudi. Mm-hmm. But uh, what was his red album? Uh, my beautiful dark twisted fantasy. That is my one of my favorite albums of all time. I think it's in my top ten too. And like I, I say this at the time, my single favorite track of the entire two thousands was "Runaway." That is a that is a masterful song. That's, what about with the Seth Rogen uh, movie? Uh, was it the the night before? When have you seen it? I know I never saw it. Like oh, I'm, I'm so they, far behind on Rogen. Okay, so uh, they had the good. keyboard. <laughs> they had this giant keyboard on the f- floor, and the three boys, and they play. They do a cover of that. That's funny. It, oh wow! It was a hell of. A, I was like, yes, because like, I, I love that album. And not, the, that was yeah. that's probably. What, the greatest song on that album, no doubt. Yeah, to me, that's the centerpiece of the album. But, I mean, the thing with Kanye is, I mean, I've told people this, is like, look, I have long believed in the principle of separate the art from the artist. 
there's a lot of people whose work I admire mm-hmm. that there's a lot of elements yeah. of their personality I really don't care for. And right. like, for example, yeah. I'll you know, I'll pick a guy, one of my favorites, Lou Reed. I love his music, but the guy himself, from everything I've heard, the guy was a total dick. Yeah, <laughs> things back to the original talk on music, Bowie-esque. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I'm I've always I've been thinking a lot these past few years about the the idea of genre. Mm-hmm. And specifically, how I think genre is dead, and maybe it, like maybe in the terms of like strict boundaries, it should be. Mm-hmm. I like how we when we can't classify what it is, we just call it Americana. <laughs> no labels. Like there was like I had a moment. I had a moment with Beyonce back when Lemonade dropped in 2016. <laughs> I was not a fan before that, but. Those were dark times. Bowie just died. Prince had just died. I was looking for something. I was looking for something, and this Lemonade album dropped. And I saw on there where she did a song with Jack White. And I'm like, don't hurt yourself. I'm like, this is Beyonce with Jack White, and the fucking drum sample is John Bonham from When the Levee Breaks. Like, this is beautiful. I love it. I like, I don't get how all this goes together. But it fucking works. Yeah. And maybe who gives a fuck about genre? Who cares? You want to talk if about it's great, genres? it's great. You want to talk about genres all together? Holy shit. I love bluegrass music too. So I was deep in the YouTube watching bluegrass musicians. And uh, one of my favorite ones is uh, uh, Ricky Skaggs. Mm-hmm. And I saw one where he did a song with Jack White. He, you know, so it was like Jack White and Ricky Skaggs. Like, never would have thought. And they... they went hard it was it was damn good too I can't remember the name of the song but like they collaborated together too the only thing I'll say uh, I guess to argue that point about genre is just back to Jack White and like I love everything that he does at Third Man Records is like the revitalization of Motown mm-hmm. and like the representation of that and like we do need to know that this is Detroit this is Motown you know mm-hmm. uh, but that would be it if, if anything else, I would love to walk away from it. Because like, it's so... It's crazy Like when you go to talk about music and you're trying to share something new with somebody, and especially if you know what they like, is, mm, how can I pander this to you to make you feel like you should check it out? Mm. I know you like folk, so it's folk punk. Mm. <laughs> or you just yeah. say some weird shit like that. You know? I... Th- so at this point, it's like I do believe like the your, you know R and B rap, uh, your your big genres uh, should exist. But when we start subclassifying and then classifying within the subgenres, it's like we are wearing ourselves out. Yeah, yeah. it's like with the uh, I know was it like in the hardcore scene, it's like oh this is metalcore, this is grindcore, yeah, this is discore, this postcore, is postcore, yeah, this is screamo, this is mm-hmm. it, there's they have this or or. Uh, pop punk or pop punk core or you know they'll, they same thing it, it's they have this I think some of it too is uh, with now the way that uh, music is distributed uh, and then people go through and look for you know you go through if you, you get on a channel and you what do you feel like listening to well what genre do you want to listen to so they make sure they tag themselves to and all these different ones to get more exposure and then you have playlists dedicated to the genre. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And they kind of blend in together because it's like, oh, if you like this one, you may like this one because they also have this, you know. Well, 
Justin, thank you so much. Uh, first time on the show. You're welcome. It was an honor to be here. Johnny, back again. And fired. You're fired. I'm fired. <laughs> oh, I knew that was coming. You're doing a great job, but you're fired. Okay. Well, you could just you could stay with him then. <laughs> we have your replacement. Great guy. The best in the biz. News and notes. Thank you so much for listening to Porch Talk. If you haven't done so already, I would ask that you would rate and review the show on whatever podcast app it is that you're listening to on. Connect with us on social media. We have a website, www.porch-talk.net. You can catch up on things gone by, things to come. I'm going to walk it down out the door here with Early James High Horse. See y'all. Peace out. Well, I kind of sort of wish that I could keep clean And the kind of sort of way that I used to be it's a childlike belief in time's been the faith all along and that's the view from this high horse I'm on a fever dream it seems of just passing the time too much nicotine and wine With my milk mustache shaped Things I once craved Make me own And that's the view From this high horse I'm on And I can't remember The last time that I Just a childlike belief in 
from this high horse I'm on. The view from this high horse I'm on. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.